The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to Paid Social Week on the MarTech Podcast. This week, we're doing a deep dive into one of the most effective, diverse, and fastest evolving channels in marketing, paid social. Each day this week, we're going to publish an episode that discusses what you need to know about channel selection, targeting, and performance marketing optimization for your paid social campaigns. With us today is Soso Sazesh, who is the founder of Growth Pilots, which is a digital marketing agency that partners with high growth companies to manage their paid search and social marketing channels. Growth Pilots selectively partners with a limited number of clients, including Instacart, Glassdoor, and Betterment, to give time to ensure maximum context and focus on driving results through performance marketing. Here's the first installment of Paid Social Week, where Soso and I discuss the current landscape and relevant players in the paid social space. Soso, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. It's great to have you here. I'm really excited about this because one of the things that we're working on is figuring out how to do performance marketing for the MarTech Podcast. And there's a bunch of different channels that we are considering, and you have great visibility into how all of them work and how they fit together. Before we get talking about the landscape of paid social as it exists today, tell us a little bit about your background and tell us about Growth Pilots. So I grew up in northern Minnesota where there's no digital marketing whatsoever. And my father actually lived out in Silicon Valley. So I had the opportunity to come out here while I was growing up. And after high school, I made what I like to think is the, the wise decision to move out here and take advantage of all of the opportunity that existed in Silicon Valley. I eventually ended up going to school out here. I went to Cal and my first job out of Cal was at a digital marketing agency focused on paid search. So that's really where I learned performance marketing, kind of cut my teeth there and really fell in love with the ability to maximize the performance and customer acquisition for these technology companies. So I did that for a couple of years and felt like I got a really good grasp on the landscape, on how to manipulate the channels to get optimal performance. So I moved on from there and decided to try my hand at a startup. I started a company called Circle with a friend of mine, and we were basically trying to help offline retailers and merchants bridge the gap between what they were doing online and people walking in the store. So we built some interesting technology to kind of help bridge that gap 
And ultimately, we were not successful, but there was a really big learning and lesson that came out of that. So going through that process of starting the company, we went through the AngelPad Startup Accelerator. We raised a seed round of capital. And in operating that company over the course of two years, I really got an appreciation for what it took to run a company and the inner workings of a startup where resources and time are limited. Everybody's doing lots of things and you kind of just need to buckle up and just get your shit done. So as we were winding circle down because we failed to get the traction or the metrics that we needed to raise our subsequent round of funding, which of course is the startup game. We've all been there. (laughs) And what was interesting was I started to see these patterns around me of all my fellow founders within the startup ecosystem who were struggling with their digital marketing channels. So I kind of put both hats on my digital marketer, my performance marketer hat, and combined that with my startup founder hat and basically brought these two together. And I think it allowed me to see this really interesting opportunity in the market where these early stage high growth companies were not able to make their performance marketing channels work. They didn't know how to run these channels. They would try to do it internally. They just didn't have the time and expertise to do it right. And then what they would do is they would look to agencies. They would say, well, hey, we should trust the experts on this. The problem is most agencies don't have that same appreciation or understanding of these high growth, fast moving startups. So those engagements would often fail. I can't tell you how many conversations I had of companies who went through that experience that I just mentioned. So I looked at that as an opportunity where I wanted to come in and help them figure out what to do with these channels and do it properly with the appreciation of having been a startup founder and an expert within the digital marketing channels. A funny thing, there's a parallel to your career and mine in the sense of I had my pre-startup experience where I gained some skills. I ran my own startup. I ran it straight into the ground. (laughs) And then I realized that the thing that I did best was helping to give that brand a voice and create the identity and positioning. And I was a better marketer than I was a startup founder. And so I decided to dedicate the rest of my career into marketing. And that's helped create the career path that I'm on now. It's funny how the losses help you figure out what you're really good at and what you're focusing on. And for you, in that case, led you into the landscape of being a performance marketer. And I know that your brand's positioning is really to deeply integrate with a select couple of companies that are fast-moving growth stage startups. So you've worked across a bunch of different social networks and you've worked across a bunch of different companies. Tell us a little bit about how you think of the landscape of performance marketing today and how has it changed since you got into the space? It's an interesting question because there's been such a shift from when I started. When I started Growth Pilots, our core focus was really on paid search. Paid social at that time, and when I say paid social, I'm referring to Facebook, which is really the only viable performance marketing channel for paid social. And at that time, there was no optimized bidding. Everything was very manual. It was granular. In fact, Facebook didn't even have a conversion tracking pixel, which is insane to think about. It was literally finding the target audiences within Facebook and bidding the amount that you want to pay either on a CPC or CPM basis. And that was the extent of it. There was no lookalike audience. So this was really, I guess, prehistoric. Back in the old days, you know, in the 2000s. And that's the crazy thing. This has been five or six years. This is not that long ago. It just goes to show how quickly paid social has advanced. For all the marketers that are over 40 and realize that there was a world before Google and Facebook, we can hear you rolling your eyes as we speak. But in (laughs) terms of paid social, yes, those are the prehistoric days. Yeah. And I think that's a contentious issue in itself because one thing I've learned about performance marketers is 
they learn something that works and that becomes their secret sauce that they apply. And those strategies are very perishable. And that timeline has really tightened over time as the platforms have changed so much. Whereas before, you could know paid search and you'd have your playbook down and this would be what you would do for years at a time. And now you constantly, and I'm talking on a monthly basis, need to be reevaluating what you're doing because the platforms are changing and the strategies that work change so rapidly. So it's really shifted who has the power in performance marketing. It's actually less about being a veteran. Like even me, I feel like I'm a dinosaur having started growth pilots five years ago and only been in this space for eight to 10 years. It's kind of crazy. I'm trying to think of what's older than a dinosaur, but if you're a dinosaur, then I'm that. And I don't like how that's positioning. So please take it back. (laughs) The thing that you said that sticks out to me is that the channels and tactics in paid social are short-lived and you use the term perishable, which I think is a really great description. It's kind of like if you have a strategy and an optimization trick that's working, it either gets adopted by everyone and their mother to the point where the strategy is no longer a differentiator or something else comes up that's different. Over the time since you started working in paid social, you mentioned that there was the creation of the conversion pixel and like audience. Talk to me about some of the other innovations that you've seen and what are the cutting edge things that you focus on to drive growth and conversions across the multiple different channels. Now that we have lookalike audiences and we have conversion pixels, what's the way to use any social channel and drive that growth? So, and this is what keeps me up at night thinking about because the platforms are encroaching on those levers and for the better, they're making them more automated, more sophisticated. So marketers have to do less manual work, but there's really three core levers, if you will. One is audience selection and targeting. You need to be able to find the right audience on those platforms and make sure that it's going to be relevant for whatever it is that you're offering. The second component is creative. So the formats, the dynamics, and really what works on each channel, it really does vary. And this has changed within each channel pretty significantly. The third pillar is really optimization and the ability of the marketer to make changes to whether it's bids, whether it's budgets, whether it's segmenting audiences so that you can see more granular performance and doubling down on what's working and cutting away what's not. But really, if you look at it, It's audience targeting, creative, and ability to optimize. Those are the three pillars that really drive performance marketing at a whole. And obviously, each of those is a huge topic that we can dive into each one. But what we've seen in terms of the shift of a lot of these, frankly, all three of these have changed very dramatically. Let's start with audiences. If you look at the beginning of audiences, and I think I'll reference Facebook again, because I think that's a good starting point. It was interest-based targeting, where you would target people who Facebook had determined was interested in certain things. And in the early days of the Facebook platform, this was primarily based on page likes, the types of pages that people were liking. So great, that's an okay proxy for whether or not an audience might be relevant. It was really the core signal that we had at the time. And that was overlaid against location, age, and gender. So that was really your universe of what you had available for targeting. And as time progressed, things got more sophisticated. Facebook then pulled in the third-party data partners who brought some external data into the system and allowed you to target based on activity that was happening outside of Facebook. So credit card transaction data, you know, they had the partnership with TransUnion, for example. And things continued to get more sophisticated and evolve. Facebook started taking into account more than just expressed or observed behavior. 
before it was if you liked the page or what you were doing outside of the platform. And then they started to infer, okay, what types of content is this person engaging with? And so their own interest targeting got more sophisticated. And I don't know the exact timeline and sequence of events. I might be a little bit out of order here. And then lookalike audiences develop. And this was the game changer that I think this is why Facebook advertising is where it is today. The advent of lookalike audiences where you can basically give Facebook some input seed audience and Facebook will find other people who most resemble that input audience based on all of the data they collect. And that just allowed marketers to go from testing different configurations of interest and these third-party data audiences to now saying, hey, I know exactly the profile of who I want to go after. And you give that to Facebook and they spit out this magical lookalike audience that performs really well. So I think that was kind of the game changer as it pertains to audiences. I think that's where we are now. Lookalikes continue to get more sophisticated. I think they're bringing in more data points. And that's really the standard in terms of the more targeted audience selection. I think that this is the most intimidating thing for people who are starting to work with performance marketing in general and specifically with paid social is the number of variables that are presented to you when you're trying to select your audience, right? You have your demo, your geo, your interest, and then you get these sort of transactional variables that you can all pick together to create your targeting, your audience selection. And it can be very difficult and confusing to try to navigate all of those different variables when you're placing the ads, right? You have to decide on 15 different checkboxes or dropdowns when you're actually placing the ads, whether it's in Facebook or some of the other platforms. What advice do you have for people that are doing their audience selection to try to simplify the process while keeping the effectiveness high on their campaigns? Totally. And I think this is, I would say, the number one question Facebook is asking itself internally, because the only way to get new advertiser growth is going to be to reach the people who don't fully understand that level of sophistication, right? So I think they've saturated a lot of the would-be performance marketing community or advertisers because they know how to manipulate these platforms. And there's kind of a renaissance taking place that I don't think is a surprise to anybody where Facebook is going next. They don't want you to have to make those decisions so much so that they're simplifying the product to the point where the performance marketers who really understand how to turn those knobs, you now have much less control than you did historically. And that's the trend that we're going to now. And the difficult part of this is the performance shows that it can still work. So there is this fine balance. And the current trend that we're seeing is lookalike audience is great and building out these segmented lookalikes based on customer data you have. Great. That has performed very well. Now there's this new evolution happening where, hey, target all of Facebook and Facebook will do the optimization for you. And this is a huge change because this changes the strategy and the way that you think about the channel as a whole. But it also requires a lot of trust on the advertiser side that Facebook is going to act in the best interest of the advertiser. I think there's a whole separate week of podcasts talking about Facebook and their trust issues. But let's talk about your second pillar of performance marketing in the landscape, which was the bidding tactics. I think that there's been a shift moving away from the sort of banner ad style CPM bidding. And then there was the search style CPC advertising. And now we've kind of gone into this paper performance model. What are the ways that you're seeing to effectively bid and maximize your conversions and efficiency using bidding strategies? 
Yeah. So in general, we take the stance, we want to let the platform use the information that it's receiving through the pixel and through data that we're providing to make the best bidding decisions possible. But we don't want to just let the platform completely run away with it. And what that means for us is finding a balance. So you can still bid manual CPC, meaning you're bidding for clicks. You're paying on a per click or on a per impression basis. You can still do that. And on the other side of the spectrum is just let Facebook handle it for you. Don't even give them guidance on what you're willing to pay for a conversion or a click. You just let Facebook take care of it. Just take my money. Take my money. Yeah. And as performance marketers, we're not comfortable with that. We are very focused on hitting specific CPA goals, for example. And as a result, we choose the middle ground, which is choosing a target CPA, if you will, where we can say, Facebook, go and find customers who will convert at this CPA. So lowest cost with the bid cap is the way that you achieve that by setting that hard parameter of this is the cap that I'm willing to pay for a conversion. And what you notice is Facebook is not that great at hitting that on the button. Even over a period of time, it does a pretty good job. It tries to kind of average out the variance to hit that mean or that average target CPA, but it still requires a lot of optimization. And I think a lot of marketers fail to take that into account. They think the platform is going to just, okay, I tell them I want a $100 CPA target. I'm going to hit $100 and I'm not going to change my bid. And we've actually seen a lot of leverage in manipulating that target bid and getting better performance as a result. And we actually built some technology that basically automates that process where we would observe the difference between a target bid and what actual performance was and close the gap by adjusting it. The last time I was running a lot of Facebook ads, the strategy that I was implementing was basically overstating what the maximum I was willing to pay, right? If my target CPA was 50, I was putting it at 150 because I'm looking for volumes and then I'm turning off creatives because I want to get the volume to my ads. By raising the bid, you're going to get more impressions. And then when you're seeing that the conversions aren't performing very well, you turn it off quickly. So you're artificially setting a high CPA goal. Even if you only want to pay $50 CPA, I was setting it to 150 and then turning off the ads that weren't performing. Whether that's the right strategy or not, I'm not sure. But that's always the dance of set your CPA goals, but then also you need to think about volume as well. Talk to me a little bit about creative. You mentioned that that was one of the pillars of optimization for paid social as well. Absolutely. I think if you look at what's happened from a creative standpoint, there's been a lot of influence by, no pun intended, the influencer marketing trend that's emerged over the past few years. And really what we've seen is in the early days, again, if I'm kind of walking back the evolution, paid social ads were very heavy DR, like it was heavy call to actions. The ads looked like your typical banner ad and spammy is not the right word, but sales focused. Yeah, it was sales focused. Everybody was looking for that click to conversion and the creative reflected that mentality. And then I think what the industry saw was that those creatives tended to not get the best delivery over time. What was happening is I think the platforms were becoming more authentic and appreciating a more authentic feel. When you're on a social network, you're engaging with the community, with your friends. So there's a lot of authenticity there. And when you interrupt that authenticity with an ad that's like, hey, click here, go get this offer, I think it's pretty abrasive. So the Facebook algorithm being what it is would recognize that and those ads would not get as much delivery as opposed to something that had a more authentic feel. 
And when you start to kind of look at the trend of where we are now, and this is probably going to pain some of your audience members who may have went down this path, but you know, we've seen so many companies invest heavily, heavily on these large scale production videos to shoot on Facebook and on Twitter, on Snapchat, and even on LinkedIn. And the thinking was, oh, well, let's do a heavy brand feel. We don't want to feel like we're selling too much to the audience. Let's create this really nice brand experience, but wrap VR around it. And I think that that was the right intention and wasn't a bad hypothesis based on this shift that was happening from these really sales-heavy ads. But what you saw was this kind of leapfrog effect where people started experimenting with shooting amateur-style videos on their iPhone, really authentic, or doing boomerangs, things that were eye-catching, things that were in vogue with what was happening on social media as a whole. And because the Facebook algorithm would look at it and say, these are getting much higher engagement rates. Therefore, this is more valuable to the audience. So let's give that a higher relevance score. And you would see those getting all the delivery and performance. So it's an on-demand world. And I think the takeaway here is that first off, video is very important for performance marketing, full stop. Second, if you're using videos, creating a high volume of short content that is changing frequently seems to be the strategy on Facebook. Obviously, that works in Snapchat and Instagram. Do you see that being something that works across all of the various social networks? The ones that support video, yes. And not to backtrack too much, but I think there are a couple of other important distinctions. One that, as you called it, full stop, video I didn't mention that video didn't exist right in the early days of Facebook. It was static image ads. And then video came on the scene and kind of ran away with the engagement because that was what was working best. So you saw static image transitioning to video, transitioning to amateur style iPhone footage. Blair Witch style video. Exactly. So that was one big transition. And then you have this concept of social proof, which I think is really important and worth mentioning. When Facebook sees people liking and commenting, there's a self-fulfilling effect that takes place. It's people see that. They're like, why does this ad have so many comments and likes? They click into it and then they start engaging in the comments and liking them. And this just props these creatives up. So you have a strategy baked in there where it can make sense to generate as much social proof for certain creatives as possible when you know those creatives perform well because those will end up getting favored and see higher engagement rates. And that exists across all of the platforms. So back to your question, from a video standpoint and doing things that are more authentic, Facebook definitely led the charge there. Now, Snapchat is a relatively new ad platform. And that was born in the era where all of these trends already existed. And that platform by nature already has that really authentic kind of amateur style story format. So that's really where that platform evolved and kind of came from. It was born into the era where that stuff worked. So just to summarize some of the stuff that we talked about, the main three pillars to consider when you're going through and putting your paid social strategy together are your audience selection, your targeting, your creative selection seems like the focus there is going to be on video and your bid strategy and how much can you rely on the platforms to be able to optimize for you and basically figure out who's going to be the most likely to convert based on what your performance metrics are. So we're going to cover those three variables across a couple of different social networks for the rest of the week. So stay tuned for the rest of Paid Social Week. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. 
Thanks to Soso for joining us. If you'd like to learn more of Soso's tips for building an effective paid social strategy, we're going to publish an episode every day this week. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and check back with us tomorrow morning when we're going to discuss how dominant Facebook and Instagram are as players in the paid social space. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to get in touch with Soso, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can send him a tweet where his handle is Soso Sazesh, S-O-S-O-S-A-Z-E-S-H, or you could visit his company's website, growthpilots.com. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, don't worry about it. We've got you covered. Just head over to martechpod.com where we have summaries and transcripts of all of our episodes. And if you're a subscriber to the MarTech Podcast, thank you for being a member of our community. We always want to hear from you, so we built benjshap.com slash question, where you could submit your questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you could always reach out on social media. My handle is benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P, on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a weekly stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, in addition to the rest of Paid Social Week, we've got some great episodes lined up. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app, and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.